In 2007, Dr. Regina Herzlinger, the Nancy R. McPherson Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School, wrote a book called Who Killed Healthcare? Making a strong case for a healthcare system based on consumer choice and pricing transparency. More than a decade later, America is now struggling to make the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, solvent, and most countries in Europe are facing exponentially increasing healthcare costs and the rationing of government services. In fact, the U.S. Congress is now developing 1970-style pricing controls for Medicare Part D. Dr. Herzlinger's book was absolutely prescient in predicting the problems we face today funding health care and offered a unique perspective on how to fix it. Professor Herzlinger, it's truly a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. It's all mine, and I admire what you do. Please call me Reggie. My 28-year-old students call me Reggie, and I hazard a guess that you're older than that. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. I'm a little older than 28, but thank you, Reggie. I appreciate it. The Obama administration had two options they could have taken. One option was perhaps a more Milton Friedmanist option, transferring money to poor individuals so they could operate and buy the same health insurance like everybody else, similar to the Swiss and Germans. The other option was creating government exchanges where the only places in which the indigent and poor could get subsidies, more like government stores. Now, these stores have very strict specifications for products they stock, and the government, not the market, makes political determinations on these rules. What are the problems with the government store model, which is more what the Obamacare model became? You put it very well, Dwayne, and it is exactly what the Obamacare model became. Government stores with the government stocked what was in the stores. Insurers really didn't know how to price these stores, especially when the customers were previously uninsured, meaning that the insurers didn't know how healthy or sick the people were. The government in Obamacare tried to reassure insurers by giving them reinsurance, by saying, don't worry if you have losses because you didn't know how sick the people were, we'll make you hope. Well, we didn't. Insurers just fled the market. Furthermore, there was no transparency about the quality of the providers or the quality of the insurers. And lastly, there were very low penalties for not being insured. I don't like government penalties, but if this is an insurance program and the insurance is subsidized, so you're being given money to get insured and you're not penalized if you're not insured, well, guess who's going to get insured? Very, very sick people. Right, and then you have what's called the risk pool problem where it's only the sick people who are jumping on when they're sick and then you don't have anybody who's healthy subsidizing the model, so it basically fails to insolvency. It has what's called a death spiral, yeah. meaning that it becomes bankrupt. It has only customers who pay less than what they cost, and there are no customers to offset these losses. You don't need a CPA to figure this out. It's not going to be a good model. They kept raising the prices to try to overcome this problem, but people don't like to buy high-priced insurance. What do you think is a way to fix this? As you put it very clearly, they should have chosen option A, which is to say to the uninsured, here's money. You can buy as much insurance as the average American individual or family or whatever your status is, and you go to the normal insurance company and use this money to buy insurance for yourself. And if you don't use the money, and you can't have the money, you can only have it to buy insurance. This would have led to people who were uninsured in the past entering normal risk pools, big risk pools of insured people, 
they should have not had such strict requirements on what the insurance should be. The model they should have followed is that in Switzerland, they have no insurance provided by employers. People buy their own health insurance and they buy it in a tax-free way, but they're required to buy it. If you're poor, you get enough money so that you can buy insurance just like everybody else. And there are a lot of different insurance policies offered. There are over 60 in Switzerland, which is about as big as the average American state. There are over 60 insurance companies. In my state of Massachusetts, which has about 9 million people, there were three insurance companies, and one of them controls 75% of the market. Switzerland has a lot of insurance competition. Reggie, you mentioned a lot of things in your book that are along this line, and I should point out your book, Who Killed Healthcare? America's $2 trillion medical problem. I've been a huge fan of for many years. Thank you. One of the things you point out, this increased competition creates both economies of scale as well as complete transparency. So these insurance companies competing on price end up also competing on quality. Now, one of the problems with this, though, or at least one of the criticisms of the health system is that roughly 25% of the total cost is out of pocket. Do you see that as a problem, or do you think that that's actually a benefit? The proof of the pudding is in the tasting. The Swiss have terrific health stuffs, and they're universally rated as the best healthcare system in the world because of this terrific health status. So if people have to pay a lot of money out of pocket and it deters them from getting needed healthcare, you don't have this excellent health status that the Swiss have. You said on the average, that's very important because if you're poor, you're not paying 25% out of pocket. It's calibrated to your income. But it's important that you share in the cost of medical care so that if you have a cold, as I obviously now do, don't run to an emergency room in an academic medical center to treat it because you know you're going to be paying 25% of that bill. Go to your pharmacy as the pharmacist, what are the over-the-counter medication that I could use to treat so the out-of-pocket payment motivates the consumer of what is the most cost-effective side of care for me. And if they made bad decisions, Switzerland wouldn't have the terrific health status that it does. So you think having that 25% of the cost in the patient's pocket puts skin in the game and that then increases the awareness of the consumer to get better care, I guess? Yes, I do, but it must be <laughs> income-adjusted because... What's 25% for you and me is not for somebody who earns $20,000 a year. Sure. For them, 25% of the cost would be awful. In Switzerland, by income, they subsidize those out-of-pocket expenditures by income so that poor people are not deterred from getting care by this 25%. Nevertheless, even they are motivated to think about the most cost-effective side of care. So in your book, you discuss at great length the concept of consumer-driven healthcare, which we're sort of discussing now and touching on in Switzerland. What exactly do you mean by consumer-driven care, and isn't the U.S. model now consumer-driven in the context of what we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> I think you just answered my question. Okay. <laughs> consumer-driven to me is very simple. The healthcare system all comes from consumers. 
In most other industries, let's say the automobile industry, the money for buying automobiles comes from consumers, but they buy it directly. In the U.S., the three-plus trillion dollars, which is about as big as the GDP of India, it comes from consumers in various backhanded ways through taxes or the employers taking the money out of the employees' wages. But the consumers never control that money themselves. So to me, consumer-driven health care means let the consumers use their money directly to buy the health insurance and other health care needs that they have. In your book, you do an excellent job presenting the history of HMOs like Kaiser Permanente and how their development often mirrors the path of our current healthcare system. Can you walk us through the history of Kaiser and how you think it went yeah. awry? Kaiser is used as a model in the Obamacare transformation of healthcare. There were two parts to Obamacare. One was the creation of these government stores where, yes, you get a subsidy, but you can only buy products that the government has designed. Uh, The other part of it was that the health delivery system was reconfigured into what are called accountable care organizations, which are vertically integrated systems of care that, in theory, provide soup to nuts health care for one fixed price. And the model for that was Kaiser Permanente out in California. Kaiser is, who knows how good it is, it doesn't publish accountability data no more than any of the other parts of the healthcare system publish accountability data, but allegedly it's marvelous. So let's accept (laughs) that it's as marvelous as alleged. Kaiser is non-scalable. It cannot be readily replicated. And if it is marvelous, that's great, but you can't make more of them. And Kaiser itself proved that when it tried to replicate itself in various American states. And many of those efforts went bankrupt. Now, why is that? It's because Kaiser is a cult. It's an organization where both the providers and the customers have a certain view what is appropriate healthcare. And the view is, I'll wait a little longer, I'll have a little less, so that you wait a little less and you can have a little more. The probability of getting uh, physicians like that and patients like that in a state like Florida, for example, is a number close to zero. So Kaiser, if it is as marvelous as alleged, good for it. But you can't build more and more of them. It takes a certain kind of belief in how medical care should be provided, more like the British kind of belief. In your book, you talk about the history of Kaiser, and you sort of mentioned that it started as a very targeted, clinical, good service quality-based organization. How do you think that changed over time? Kaiser was almost biblical in its origin. Its founder, Henry Kaiser, literally walked out of the desert uh, with Kaiser, he was a great industrialist. He was building a the Grand Coulee Dam, and he created Kaiser to provide prepaid health care for the people who were working in that dam. There was no medical care around there, and he created Kaiser to provide it. That was good, very good idea. But as it grew, it lost this, um, this consciousness, became much more bottom line oriented. 
and my book is based on the murder on the Orient Express <laughs> by one of the greatest uh, novelists, certainly most creative, Agatha Christie. And the murder on the Orient Express is about a man who dies on this train, the Orient Express. The question is, who killed him? And the answer is, everybody on the train killed him. And my book talks about a man who had kidney disease, who could have been saved if he'd had a kidney transplant. But one of the killers was Kaiser, which, to save money, it had at one time outsourced its kidney transplant program to a group of doctors and their affiliates who were really expert in doing it. But it decided to save some money. It bought it, bought the program in-house. It did it itself, and it just didn't do it as well. This story was documented by the LA Times, and it's a horrific story of a, an organization that, in a way, has forgotten its mission. If we're not going to use a Kaiser system, there's an increasing push to try and put Americans and all Americans on Medicare. If we look at, say, Elizabeth Warren's plan, Medicare for All, this is also what Bernie Sanders is talking about, essentially doubling down on Obamacare. A recent study by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University said this would cost $32 trillion over 10 years. We've also heard $49 trillion. There's some numbers up over $50 trillion. It would require essentially doubling of the U.S. corporate tax rate as well as individual tax rate. Is more government control the answer to health care, Reggie? <laughs> no, no, of course not. I wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal in April of this year about Canada, truly government-controlled healthcare system that we have. And Canada is very expensive and has terrible resources when it's ranked how many doctors, how many MRIs, how many hospital beds, how long you have to wait, the outcomes for certain diseases. It's not only expensive, but it's terrible to boot. So the Canadians are great people. They deserve better than that. By the way, doing these studies uh, neglect the present status of Medicare. So our Congress, and I believe Congresses all over the world, lack a critical body part that's called the spine. <laughs> what they do with these government programs is they underprice them. So the average Medicare recipient couple receives about $600,000 worth of benefits, but they've only paid 300000 for those benefits. So who pays the missing 300000 Well, it's the next generation, the generation after that. And if you compound that underpricing of Medicare, it amounts to a net present value of $36 trillion. The GDP of the United States is $20 trillion. So forget about Medicare for all. Medicare for some, some it's, of us. It's already driving bankrupt. Already, already has gravely endangered this country fiscally. I just published another article in the Harvard Business Review that shows the fiscal status, by which I mean how much debt, how much unfunded liabilities do countries with different kinds of healthcare systems have. And the countries that have consumer-driven, pay-as-you-go healthcare systems with no government insurance policies, which is Switzerland and Germany, among others, they have terrific 
just terrific fiscal status. Countries that have government-run systems like Canada and the UK, they have lousy fiscal status because their legislators underprice what they charge present recipients and they borrow the money from future generations to price present benefits. That's a heck of a gift to give our children. The current crop of politicians, like I mentioned, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, even Donald Trump who's putting pricing controls in on medicines through the International Pricing Initiative, certainly they think this is a viable solution. Why do you think there's a lack of awareness about essentially we're using very low price debt to finance this for two or three generations out future. Well, it's not low priced if you're the one. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's low priced to us, but not to our children and grandchildren, that unfunded liability. So all these people are very smart. They know darn well what they're doing, but they want the power. They want that money that belongs to the people to be given to them. You know, $3.6 trillion, that's, a, that's not pocket change. And they can use it as they like. So it's all about power, certainly. Not that they are unaware of the disastrous fiscal and healthcare consequences of government-run healthcare systems. Canada, wonderful country, Canada, has lousy health status and health resources even though it spends a lot of money under its government control system. If we want to look at some of the other government programs that we have, what they're trying to roll out is an international reference price for medicines where the U.S. essentially paying the average of a global benchmark price, essentially putting in rent controls or price ceilings based on an international average. What will be the impact, in your opinion, on R&D and innovation if the U.S. puts these sort of pricing controls in? So, Dwayne, I'm into MIT. MIT's not a party school. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't like technology, you shouldn't go there. I like technology. <laughs> My husband's a PhD physicist. I really like technology. It's very important, and we're living in the golden age of medical research. Marvelous things are going to happen as a result of that research, but it's very expensive. However, the U.S. has funded most of that research because the U.S. pays much more for drugs than the other country. That's not fair. So what can you do? Well, you can do what Secretary Azar uh, has done. We're not going to pay these prices anymore. We're not a piggy bank for Germany, for Switzerland, for France and um, countries that can well afford to share in the price of the uh, R&D. If it sticks, there's no question that uh, R&D funding will go down unless the government step in and increase their funding base. But of course, that's not desirable. It's very desirable that private companies continue to do R&D. I think, Dwayne, you wrote an excellent piece on this, but I think, Dwayne, what could happen is that the big drug companies in these countries, Novartis, Roche, Sanofi, Bayer, GSK in the UK, will put a lot of pressure on their governments to pay more for drugs. I think that's what Azhar is hoping for. After all, he comes out of the industry and understands it very well. I hope that <laughs> that his strategy does indeed work out. 
I do too. My concern is if you look at what's been happening, if we take, say, Vertex, for example, who has a very cutting edge and very important drug for cystic fibrosis. I mean, they have been sticking to their guns and they have been refusing to bring down their price in the UK. And what the UK government has been doing is threatening them with a compulsory license and to co-opt their IP and basically just take their IP. And we're seeing more and more of this in Europe where it's not a economic issue, it's becoming a political issue. And the fundamental problem with GSK, for example, is all the European companies are making 82% of their profit just as the US companies are in the US market. I mean, the US market is the dominant market and many people are just having a buy and hold strategy in Europe. If we're dealing with these very aggressive, dare I say, anti-American pricing strategies like compulsory licenses really threatening intellectual property, doesn't that change the calculus a bit? I don't see the U.S. threatening intellectual property, but I am seeing European countries doing it. <laughs> Not yet. No. Yeah. God help us. <laughs> uh, that's, that's very dire, Dwayne. But NHS, a few years ago, refused under its quality calculus to permit access to a very expensive kidney cancer drug. And the British populace just revolted, and uh, the NHS rescinded its rule. So uh, while I share your concern that governments may infringe on private intellectual property, there is the consumer side, which, of course, the drug companies can, can inform that they just can't do R&D under yeah. these circumstances. I think it's an ugly political battle that will work out, but it's difficult for me to see how the present situation in which the U.S. funds most of the drug research and wealthy European countries are essentially free riders on that research. I don't see how that can continue. I agree with you, but what's also part of that calculus, which I think people overlook, because you have this quote-unquote free rider problem in Europe, there's also a lack of liquidity in the European market. And you have this bottleneck that occurs at phase two when people are trying to capitalize. So what you see is, you know, and you see this huge exodus of high quality biotech now coming to Massachusetts and California are the two. Absolutely. And we're we're getting that late stage value creation. America is capturing that and we're monetizing that. So in many ways, what the the other part of the Europeans don't understand is they're de-risking this technology and we're getting it at a discount and we're getting all the late stage value creation. We're getting the good stuff. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. It's, it's baffling. So <laughs> what, what, what can you say? This is an unstable political situation where an unsustainable price discount in Europe is in play and it has to be resolved in some way. I think Azar has just thrown out the first card in what will be a pretty long poker game. People are starting to quote your book again. I think we've had the sort of large government programs. We've had the ACA. And people are going back to your book in 2007 saying, you know, we really need to relook at this. Maybe this was the right track. Maybe we should take a second look. If President Trump called you tomorrow and asked you to come to D.C. to fix health care, what would be the first thing you'd try to get done? Well, the biggest cause of the cost inflation in the U.S., when I talked with you earlier about the fiscal status of Canada, the U.K., which was bad, and Germany and Switzerland, which is enviably terrific, 
the US is worse than Canada and the UK, and healthcare contributes considerably to that dangerous fiscal status. So he has got to enable the American people to use their own money tax-free to buy health insurance. And the biggest block that cannot do that right now are the 180 million Americans who get their health insurance through their corporations. What the corporations have done is, first of all, they offer very little choice, typically a choice of two policies. They make Obamacare look like a vibrant market. (laughs) And secondly, they have, so some of my best friends are employers, but nobody's an angel as far as I know. Secondly, they have surreptitiously taken more and more of the employees' money to pay for health insurance policies that cover less and less, that have massive deductibles. Um, I would like the president to enable people to use this money to buy their own health insurance and to have very clear statements that say to the employee, hey, you know what? Last year, your health insurance policy had a deductible of 3000 Now it has a deductible of 5000 hypothetically. And you're paying 30% more of the cost of that policy. I think we'd see an enormous change in consumer behavior under that. Second thing I'd like to see, but this will never happen, is people always say, my doctor, wow, terrific. My hospital, extraordinary. How do they know? There is no transparency in healthcare about the quality of the delivery of the healthcare system. And when there's no transparency, it is impossible to have the benefits of a really competitive market. Nobody likes transparency. Everybody loves transparency as long as it's not about them. The pharmaceutical industry is very transparent. They have to go through three phases to prove the safety or disprove the safety and efficacy of their drugs, medical devices as well. Medical technology as a whole has a lot of transparency. Medical delivery does not. I would urge him to put a lot of effort in that. He's a financial person. He knows what transparency did to the capital markets when we started publishing audited annual reports and people actually understood the financial status of the corporations whose stock they bought. Right now, when people go to a hospital or a doctor, no matter what their Aunt Millie told them, that doctor or hospital is not necessarily terrific and nobody knows if they are. Reggie, Dr. Regina Herzlinger, it's been a huge honor. I'm a huge fan of your work, and I'd like to thank you for your time. It's mutual, Dwayne. (laughs) Keep up the good fight. Thank you, Reggie. I appreciate that. (laughs) 